0: please visit jcasnetwork.org. Welcome to Daily Duff Differently. My name is Rabbi Abby Soslan. Today, we are beginning a new masachet, Moed Katan. I was thinking of beginning our podcast today with the definition of the word Moed. I wanted to tell you that it actually refers to what we call today Chol Moed. I wondered if this might be too basic for our listeners and then I read the words of the great 17th century commentator on the Mishnah, Yom Tov Lipman Heller, the Tosavot Yom Tov. And you'll never guess how he starts the commentary for this Mosachet. HaMishnah Tikra Mo'ed, Mashe Anu Karin, cholo Shel Mo'ed. He says the exact same thing. The Mishnah calls Mo'ed what we call Mo'ed. I love that even the greatest scholars of the history of the Mishnah We're concerned with the basics. We never need to feel embarrassed to ask even the simplest of questions. Yes, Moed Katan refers to Chol HaMoed. The word Moed is, like many other terms in rabbinic usage, used in a number of different ways depending on the context. Literally, Moed means a specified time, and it is the name of our entire order of Mishnah. The Seder is referred to as Seder Moed, the Seder of Holidays. In our case, it simply refers to the days on Pesach and Sukkot that are not Yom Tov. Today, you often hear people greeting one another during this time with Moed Tov. It is still part of the holiday, but it is not what the Torah refers to as Mikra Kodesh, those days which are called holy. The first and last days of the holiday are holy. No work may be done on them, almost like Shabbat, Kol Melechet Avodah Lotasu. You shall not do any melechah, any official work, except that which is necessary for ochel nefesh, to make food for the day. The first and last days of the holiday are restricted, but the Torah is clear that the full holiday, both Sukkot and Pesach, is seven full days. So something must be special about the intermediate days. The rabbis are careful to say that we must avoid all work that is unnecessary, what the Talmud will term Tircha yetera, excessive exertion. Our masechet deals with the distinctions between the kinds of work that may be done on Chol Hamoed. Aside from the leniency of making Ochel Nefesh, are there other kinds of milaha or labor, that are permitted during the intermediate days of the holiday? Throughout our masechet, we will encounter five different categories of work that are permitted on Chol Hamoed. It is helpful to consult an introduction to the Masechet, or perhaps to cite the legal code in the Mishnah Bura, who explains these categories at length. Very briefly, they include Davarha Ha'aved, doing work in order to avoid a loss, Tzarchei if something is necessary for the celebration of the holiday itself, Bishvil Poel She'ein Ma Yochal, a worker who might otherwise not have enough to eat, Sarchei Rabim, activities that are done for the benefit of the public, and maaseh Hedyop, unskilled work. We will have time to explore each of these categories later in the Masechet. On our today, the first Mishnah of the Tractate deals with the first of these categories, Davar HaAved, avoiding a loss. In this case, the question is whether or not we may water or irrigate a field. Mashkin Beit HaShlachin. The Mishnah divides the possibilities into different kinds of fields, a field that is naturally irrigated by rainwater or a spring. This is called Beit HaBaal, and a field which requires human effort to irrigate, Beit HaShlachin. If it requires human effort, it would incur a loss if one did not water it on Chol HaMoed, so the Mishnah will allow it. If it is naturally irrigated, it doesn't require any human effort, and therefore it would not incur loss if one did not add extra water on Chol HaMoed. The Mishnah puts forth the same rules for Chol HaMoed as those for Shvi'i, the sabbatical year. In tomorrow's daily daf, we will look more closely at the connection between Chol HaMoed and the sabbatical year. For today, I'd like to look at one strange moment on our daf. As an aside, the Gemara is curious about the etymology of these terms, Beit Hashlachin, which literally means a thirsty field or one that needs to be irrigated, and Beit Haba'al, literally a settled field, one that is naturally irrigated. Umay Mashmah, Dehai Beit Lishna De How is the derivation of Beit Hashlachin, the language of thirst? The Gemara asks, and how is the phrase Beit habal" the language of a field that is naturally irrigated by rainwater or a spring? These terms do not associate themselves easily with those ideas. The rabbis go to what they know. They look for these words in other places that they know, but in this case, they don't just go to the Torah. They go to the translation of the Torah. They go to Onkelos, the official Babylonian translation of the Torah ve'ata ayef ve'at mishalhei We render the phrase as the Targum puts it, and you were mishalhei and exhausted. The rabbis quote from the end of Khitzei, where we talk about Amalek, where it is written that you were tired and worn out, but the Onkelus, the translation, the mittar game, translated this as you were exhausted and and thirsty. The artificially irrigated field, that is the thirsty field, is now associated with the story of our people and Amalek from the passage that we read on Shabbat Zachor. Remember how Amalek got you at your weakest when you were exhausted and thirsty? That is the source for the phrase Beit Hashlachim. They take the word Beit Hashlachim and connect it to Onkelous' translation of the Torah. The the translation for Beit HaBa'al is even stranger, in my opinion. The Sansino translator explains that Beit HaBa'al is an ancient pagan way of saying that a land is fertile, from the term for the pagan agricultural god Ba'al. But the Gemara gives us a little drush on the term. Using a quote from Unclos in the Book of Isaiah, the rabbis choose a pretty graphic usage of the term "bal." "Dichtiv ki yal b'chur betula," as a young man <coughs> lives with a virgin, so shall your children live in you. "Umetargeminan arei kema kemitotav ulam in betulta yetei tivun benavech b'neich." As rabbi David Kimchi the Radak understands this, just as a young man and a virgin are a fitting match, so too the children of Israel and the land of Israel are suited for each other. Or as the Nimuke Yosef, the Tal- Talmudist Joseph ibn Habib, understands it, a young man who marries a virgin settles contentedly into his home and no longer wanders from place to place as he did when he was single. Either way, Beit Ha'ba'al refers to a field which is settled or content and does not have to be artificially watered. What a bizarre, strange set of proof texts. Really, you're looking for a verse to explain Ba'al, and this is the one you can come up with? The word Ba'al, or husband, appears so many times in the Torah, and yet this is the one the rabbis choose. These sources seem to demand a literary approach, a la the great philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, who would have looked for a thematic connection to understand why these texts, of all texts, were chosen. What are we to learn from the choices that the rabbis make in selecting their verses for proof texts? What both of these have in common is that both of these verses go to a very deeply national place for us as a people. Amalek, Remember what it was like to be wandering in the wilderness with a horrible, hateful enemy picking us off at our weakest. And Isaiah, I have a love affair with you, God is saying to the people of Israel, just like a young man with a virgin, so too we are settled on the land. The rabbis are sending a crucial, not so subliminal message. Every single action, even those that seem as far removed as possible, from Jewish life, we're irrigating farms here, is actually tinged with meaning for the Jewish people. These laws of how to irrigate land on Cholom and especially on the sabbatical year, as we will see tomorrow, they're not actually just for irrigating land wherever we are. They are for irrigating land in the land of Israel. You want the privileges of owning and tending land? Remember that the land is a gift from God and it keeps us safe from nations like Amalek and out of harm's way. Just as an aside, oh, by the way, what is the etymology of these terms? The rabbis are reminding us that everything we do in our agricultural milieu is actually a privilege, as we were once and for a long while wanderers with no land and no place to keep us safe. These two proof texts seem to be saying that the very laws of how and when to irrigate are actually meant to sanctify our actions with the regard to the land and to keep us ever mindful of our connections to our history. What a sobering message for those of us studying the Daf this summer, a time of such struggle and sadness for the state and for the people of Israel. When you take care of the land, when you keep the laws of Cholem Oed and the laws of the sabbatical year, don't forget why you're doing this. People of Israel remember Remember Amalek, remember the promise of Isaiah. Remember how much worse it used to be. Remember what a gift this whole endeavor is in the first place. And with that in mind, the discussion of irrigation on Kol takes on a much higher meaning. That's the rabbis doing their subliminal work with the proof texts. Until tomorrow. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Horus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes and Spotify.